We're back in 1 Corinthians this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're just looking at two verses this week, verses 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7. And I'll read that for us. Paul writes, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? I wanted to open this morning actually by reading a portion of the Old Testament before we get into this passage. I wanted to read from 2 Chronicles chapter 32. So turn there if you would, 2 Chronicles chapter 32. We're looking at verses 20 through 26. And as you turn there, I'll, I'll give you some background to this passage in this chapter the king of Assyria has sent a huge army to invade the kingdom of Judah. And the king of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel, the king of Judah at the time was Hezekiah. And he was uh, made aware of this army that was coming, and he knew that Judah was no match for Assyria, so he turned to the Lord. And starting in verse 20, we see him turn to the Lord. It says, But King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he, the king, returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. And many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem, and choice presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received, because his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. So you see there in that passage that Hezekiah was given much grace by God, but instead of being humbled by that grace, he became proud. And so God had to humble him. Hezekiah had a pride problem. And we've become very aware that the church of Corinth had the same problem, a pride problem. And as we go back to 1 Corinthians We remember Paul has been writing to a church that has been eaten up by prideful division. And this prideful division, this backbiting, this quarreling with one another, has been fed and fueled by the Corinthians' love of worldly wisdom. 
We've seen from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 4, about how Paul has been writing an expose of worldly wisdom. He's been showing wisdom to actually be folly. He's made us aware that worldly wisdom is passing away and that worldly wisdom results in eternal destruction for those who devote themselves to it. And this worldly wisdom has infected the believers at Corinth to the degree that they are now starting to boast in men, in mere men, teachers, that they were rallying behind as they sought to climb the social ladder and they're, you know, kicking at each other with their feet to knock each other down a few pegs, each one trying to get to the top before the other. And when we got to chapter 3, verse 5, and then we saw all the way from there through chapter 4, verse 5, Paul was showing them the folly of boasting in teachers. He showed us that gospel ministers, gospel teachers, are not masters to boast in, and they are not pawns to use in order to gain the upper hand over one another. They are merely humble servants of Christ. They are stewards who are accountable to God, and as such, they're ultimately not subject to the judgments of mere men, but they are subject to the judgment of the God-man, Christ Jesus. And so when we come to our two verses this morning, chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, we find that Paul is still trying to humble these believers. He's still trying to bring healing to their divisions. They are a tough nut to crack. And these four chapters are designed to humble the proud heart and to unite the church. And as we go through these two verses, we'll see that Paul here gives us two ways to bring a humble unity to our churches. Two ways to bring a humble unity to our churches. And the first way he gives us, we see in verse 6, and it's this. In order to arrive at a humble unity among ourselves, we must stay with the Word of God. Stay with the Word of God. And hopefully you'll see why I titled that section that way as we work through verse 6. So let's, let's look at verse 6. Notice how Paul begins this verse. He signals to us that he's taking a slight turn in his discussion with us. He says, Now these things, brethren, he says, now these things, brethren, he's gathering up what he has said previously, and he is about to make a new point with what he's been talking about. And he's referring back to what he has said in, at the very least, chapter 3, verse 5, through chapter 4, verse 5, where he's been discussing himself and another teacher, Apollos. And in that section we saw that Paul was correcting the Corinthians' wrong-headed thinking about their teachers by showing them the true nature of Christian ministry for teachers of the church. Let's just kind of walk through what we've already been through in the past. If you look at chapter 3, verse 5, there Paul highlighted the fact that gospel ministers are servants. They're not masters, they're servants. And then in verses 6 through 7 of chapter 3, we saw that gospel ministers, teachers, are nothing in that they do not cause the growth of the church. And then verse 9, 
we see that they are not owners of the field, they are field hands who are owned by God. And then verses 10 and 11, we saw how gospel ministers must be careful how they build on the foundation of the church. And remember, the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. And then in verses 12 through 17, we saw how gospel ministers are subject to a review of the quality of their work. And then verses 21 to 23, the church does not belong to the gospel minister. Rather, the teacher belongs to the church. And then when we got to chapter 4, verse 1, we saw that teachers of the church are servants and stewards. And as such, verse 2, they are required to be faithful or trustworthy. And verse 4, they will be examined by the Lord Jesus himself. And verse 5, they will receive their reward, not from men, but from God. And that brings us to chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Paul has been applying the nature of the gospel ministry to himself and his fellow worker, Apollos, but he lets us know here in verse 6 that he's not been doing this simply so that he and Apollos will sit up and make sure they do their jobs right, that they have a right attitude. No, he's saying that he has been speaking of these things, applying these truths to himself and Apollos, verse 6, for your sakes. For your sakes. The truths that we saw, chapter 3, verse 5, all the way through chapter 4, verse 5, are not intended only to impact Paul and Apollos, or even only to impact teachers in the church, but they should have an impact on all the Corinthians. They should have an impact on all of us, whether or not we are a teacher. Now, how should it impact them? What does he go on to say in chapter 4, verse 6? He says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. That you may learn not to exceed what is written. First of all, what does Paul mean by the phrase, what is written? We have to know what that means before we can know how we are careful not to exceed it. What does that mean when he says, what is written? Well, that phrase gives commentators some trouble, but the most likely answer seems to be that it's a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. Why do we think that? Or why do I think that? You might think differently. Some commentators think differently. But Paul has already used this phrase, it is written, four times in the letter before we get to chapter 4, verse 6. For example, turn back to chapter 1, verse 19. Paul writes, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And then uh, verse 31 of chapter 1. He says, So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then chapter 2, verse 9. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. 
And then lastly, chapter 3, verse 19, where Paul says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. You see that phrase, it is written. In each of those four times, it's used to introduce a quote from the Old Testament. And in each one of those four cases, the scripture that Paul is quoting is being used by Paul to support his claim that the world's wisdom is actually foolishness. And that the only one that we should be boasting in as believers is God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we come back to chapter 4, verse 6, and Paul says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. He's most likely saying that by paying attention to the example of Paul and Apollos, by paying attention to what the true nature of gospel ministry is, these, believer, these believers will learn not to stray beyond what the scriptures say. And specifically, what does he have in mind about what the scriptures are teaching? They will learn not to subscribe to worldly wisdom, which the scriptures warn against. They will learn to boast in God alone, in Christ alone, the very thing that the scriptures command each one of us to do. Now, how does that work? How does me, looking at the example of Paul and Apollos, if I'm not a teacher, how does me, looking at the truth about the ministry of teachers in the church, how does it work that that should change how I live, how I see things? Well, look back at chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. You remember there in that section, the church is compared to what? Okay, a garden. My translation says a field. All right, a garden or a field. Now, according to that section, who is the owner of the field? And who causes the growth of the plants in the field? Is it the minister or is it God? God. So who should the minister boast about, himself or God? God. So who do you think you should boast about, the minister or God? God. Very good. Jill is our top student. <laughs> um, yeah. Continuing on in chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, there the church is compared to a building, the temple of God built upon the foundation of Christ. And remember, Paul talks about being careful how you build on the foundation. If a minister starts teaching worldly wisdom, is he building carefully upon the foundation? No, he's not. Now, will worldly wisdom enable him to build with gold, silver, and precious stones? No, it will cause him to build with wood, hay, and stubble. And having built on the foundation, if he does so, according to worldly wisdom, what do you think will happen to his work on the day that God evaluates his work? Will it survive God's fiery evaluation, or will it be burned up? It will be burned up, and that minister will suffer loss of reward. And then look at 17, verse 17 of chapter 3. Warning against destroying God's temple. 
If all a minister does is teach worldly wisdom, instead of proclaiming Christ crucified, will he be building up God's church or will he be destroying God's church? He will be destroying it. And as a result, he himself will be destroyed, it says. Now, consider yourselves if you're not a teacher in the church. Are you still called to play a part in the building up of God's church? Hopefully you see that, yes, the rest of Scripture says you are. You are called to play a a part. So, is it okay for you to build with worldly wisdom? No, it's not. Now, is there a reward to win or lose for yourself in addition to the teacher? Yes, there is a reward for you to win or lose. Now, let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Who is it who will ultimately determine whether or not the minister has been faithful? You or Christ? Any ideas? What? Christ, that's right. So who do you think that you will ultimately have to answer to for whether or not you have been faithful? Will you have to answer to me or Pastor Barney or Owen? Or will you have to answer to Christ? Christ, that's right. You see, what Paul has written about the gospel minister applies to each one of us, even if we're not a teacher. Yes, the teacher in the church is more accountable to Christ than you by virtue of his position, by virtue of the knowledge that he should have. And according to James chapter 3, verse 1, the teacher will incur a stricter judgment than you. But that does not mean that there will be no judgment for you, nor does it mean that you are not accountable to God just because you are not a teacher in the church. Uh, flip over quickly, if you would, to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, to Christ. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So whatever place we, whatever our place in the church, we are all of us going to have to give an account to our master. And our master, Jesus, has made it very clear in all the scriptures how he wants us to be laboring for his glory. And the how is this. We must abandon worldly wisdom, worldly philosophies, and we must make our boast in, place our confidence in the Lord Jesus alone. So back to chapter 4, verse 6. He says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos so that in us you may learn not to go beyond what is written, not to stray beyond the boundaries of the scriptures. So we are to stay with the scriptures. Now, if we stay with the scriptures, if we trust in the word of God instead of the word of man, what result will that have? Well, verse 6 goes on to tell us, um, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that 
no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Sticking to the word of God will keep you humble and it will foster unity. Sticking to the word of God will keep you from becoming arrogant, literally uh, puffed up. The word of God will keep you humble. As you read this word, it constantly reminds you that you are a sinner, a sinner who is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And as you read this book, you'll find that it will constantly remind you that only God is worthy of glory. There's not a man who ever lived who is worthy of glory except the man, Christ Jesus. And when you stop feeding your soul upon the word of God and you start depending instead on worldly philosophies, the wisdom of the world, you will become proud. You will. We all know what it looks like to fill a balloon with helium. You have this little shriveled up piece of rubber that is of no account, but then you hook it up to a helium tank and you you turn the valve and that thing begins to grow. And it becomes a distinct shape. It gets bigger and bigger and if you let it go, it'll just rise up into the sky higher and higher. And it looks impressive compared to what it was before, but it really is no more than what it started out being initially. It's the same amount of rubber. And actually, once it's inflated and puffed up, it's even more susceptible to getting popped than it was when it was deflated. And it is the same with a Christian who succumbs to pride. Worldly wisdom is the helium that swells your ego. The more the world affirms you, the more important you become in your own eyes, the more puffed up you become. And eventually, you get so puffed up that you forget that you are a sinner saved by grace. And God usually, by his mercy, pops your balloon head. And if you read enough of this book, you'll come to realize that God is an expert at popping balloon heads. We saw that with Hezekiah, didn't we? There's so many examples where God is just running around with a needle, just popping balloon heads every which way. And if you read this book, you'll see that and you will strive to remain as humble as possible because you will know that only he is worthy of glory. Sticking to the word of God will keep you humble. But notice the end of verse 6 also said that sticking to the word of God uh, will keep you from becoming puffed up, but also keep you from becoming puffed up in behalf of one against the other. Sticking to the word of God will foster unity. Abandoning scripture brings in pride. And whenever pride enters the church, division is close to follow. When a church becomes pridefully man-centered, you boast in the preacher or you boast in the music or you, you boast in whatever person is in that church or you boast in yourself the church eventually splinters apart because there are too many men, too many women, and not enough glory to go around for everyone. But when a church becomes humbly Christ-centered, 
which is what sticking to the Scriptures always results in, that church becomes an unbreakable, united ball of steel because the incorruptible, everlasting Christ is the only one receiving all the glory and the heart of each man and the heart of each woman in that church forgets self and focuses on Christ instead. And nothing can tear that body apart because Christ never changes. He never disappoints us. So, what is the first thing we need to do to foster humble unity among ourselves? It is to stay with the word of God. But there's a second thing, and we see that in verse 7. The second thing we're to do to foster humble unity is we are to stand on the grace of God. Stand on the grace of God. We see this in verse 7. In verse 7, Paul calls on these Corinthians to do some self-examination. He asks them three questions. The first question he asks is, for who regards you as superior? More literally, it says, for who distinguishes you? Or for who makes a distinction for you? Who makes you distinctive compared to others? The Corinthians have been doing a lot of making distinctions among themselves, making a distinction between this teacher and that teacher, and between um, oneself and another person. They've been continually doing this and quarreling. One says, I belong to Paul, so I'm better than you. The other says, no, no, I belong to Apollos. Apollos is better than Paul, so I am better than you. Don't you see? And so Paul is asking them here, is it right for you to be making these kinds of judgments? Remember what he said in verse 5. He said, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Christ alone gets to make those kinds of distinctions. I want you to turn to the epistle of James, because James hits really hard on this type of presumptuous judging, this drawing of distinctions between persons in the body of Christ. James chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes, and this is an example, this is not the only type of partiality, it's one example. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. And you say, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions? It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? 
but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And again, he's not saying being rich is bad. He's just saying you're not thinking clearly. Verse 8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. How can that be? It's because the same God who says, don't be partial, is the same God who wrote every other command in the law of God. And so when you break one, doesn't matter which one you break, you're rebelling against the one who wrote them, God himself. And that's what James says, verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, Speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When you stand before Christ on the day of judgment, do you want to experience his mercy or do you want to experience his justice? If you are someone who has truly repented of your sins, and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only Savior and Lord, you have done that because you desire mercy, not justice. You understand that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and you have cried out to him, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And you made that cry, you came to him in faith because you understand that if God were to give you justice, you would end up in hell. You want mercy if you're a Christian. But James says, judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. You cannot be someone who's experienced the mercy of God and then turn around and show no mercy to your brother or sister in Christ. If you are someone who is characterized by not showing grace to people, if you are someone who is characterized by tending to write people off every time they fall short of your subjective expectations, if you are someone who is characterized by not forgiving and never forgetting, if you are someone who is characterized by keeping an endless list in your mind of people's offenses against you, then the scriptures say you need to seriously question whether or not you have actually received the mercy of God. You need to question your salvation. You need to realize that you may actually not be a Christian. A true Christian is someone who realizes that he or she has so sinned against God that he or she deserves an eternity in hell. A true Christian is someone who understands that Jesus Christ is God himself who became a man in order to live a righteous life in your place because you failed to live that righteous life. And he suffered the wrath of God on the cross 
enduring what you deserve to suffer so that you would be rescued from that fate if you would trust in him. A true Christian is someone who turns away from vengeful attitudes and says, I want to live for Christ. If you are a true Christian, you will have a soft heart that is willing to forgive others for their offenses against you because you understand that in Christ, God has forgiven you of infinitely more sin than anyone could ever possibly even begin to sin against you. So Paul says, who regards you as superior? What right do you think you have to make distinctions amongst yourselves? Paul asks two more questions. In verse 7, he says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Let's turn back to chapter 1 to remind ourselves what these believers have received. Chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. These Corinthians, they have received grace. They have received incredible giftedness to be able to build one another up in the church. They have received fellowship with God's own Son, Jesus Christ. But they are acting like they have arrived by their own merits rather than by the grace of God. They are perverting their giftedness by using it to exalt themselves rather than to build up one another. They are dividing Christ rather than rejoicing in fellowshipping with Christ. They have completely forgotten that everything they have was given to them purely by the grace of God. And they are living for what they can get in this world. And they are trying to get it by worldly wisdom. They are taking the gifts of God and they are holding up these gifts for all to see. And they are saying, I have done this. Therefore, I'm better than you. What a perversion of the grace of God. Do you and I do this with the gifts of God? I know I have and I do. Reading, um, studying these two verses made me think back to soccer season in my senior year of high school. I started out well that season, impressing my coach enough that he decided to put me in the starting lineup on defense. I'd never been a starter before, so I was on cloud nine. But I quickly lost that position because when the coach started introducing uh, more complex strategies for how to play defense, I just couldn't grasp what he was wanting us to do. And so he quickly demoted me. 
And I was crushed by that. And I cried out to God in prayer that he would help me to understand what I'm supposed to be doing to get with it on the soccer team. And God was gracious to me. And slowly he enabled me to begin to catch on. And as I caught caught on to what was expected of me on the field, I began to get more playing time. And it got to the point where my coach started me in the second half of a game or two. And so I was on cloud nine again, floating on air, and my head was puffed up. I forgot to give God glory. I thought I had made this happen for myself. And then one game, I jumped up in the air for the ball, and when I landed on the ground, it felt like my knee was coming apart. I didn't know what had happened, but it turns out that my kneecap had gotten the bad idea that it should jump out of its socket now and then. And I was pretty much out for the rest of the season because of that injury. God had popped my balloon head. He took his finger and he put my knee out of joint to remind me that I can't even hold my own body together. There's no such thing as a self-made Christian. Wherever God has placed you in the church, it is purely his grace that he has placed you there at all. And if you are selfishly ambitious and you are discontent with what you have and you are using what you do have in order to get ahead for your own sake in life and in the church, you have gone beyond scripture and you have lost sight of the measureless grace of God. And you need to get back to the word of God. And you need to get back to dwelling on the grace of God that he has so generously lavished upon you. And if you are still dead in your sin this morning, an unbeliever, cry out to God to have mercy on your soul. Ask him in faith to apply what Jesus has done on the cross to your life. God promises you in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, you know how easy it is for us to become prideful and for our heads to get puffed up. So Lord, we thank you so much for these first four chapters of 1 Corinthians and all the ways you have given us there to remind ourselves that we are nothing, that Christ is everything. Thank you for these ways you have taught us this morning to stay humble before you. Lord, we do it by relying on your word, not on the opinions or the reasonings or the theorizing of men or the, the opinions of our, our, our friends, our peers, Lord, We stay humble by sticking to your word. And Lord, we stay humble by standing on your grace, constantly reminding ourselves that we have not earned salvation. It has been given to us as a gift that we've received through faith. It's all of you. It's all what you have done, Lord. It never stops being by grace. And so we must never stop standing on grace. Lord, help us to never start leaning on ourselves, seeking to justify ourselves in the eyes of others, or especially in your eyes. Help us to stand on Christ alone. He is our 
only hope, our only plea before you. And Lord, that should foster unity with one another. If I am keeping my eyes in your book and I am continually standing on your grace, then I will never seek to be put at odds unnecessarily uh, for any, any reason less than a scriptural reason. I will never seek to be put at odds with my brother or sister in Christ. I will strive for unity. I will be quick to forgive when they come and say, hey, I'm sorry I did this. I will be quick to forgive them because of the host of things that I have been forgiven of. Lord, make us those kinds of people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.